Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. As always, each episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show explores how today's horror filmmakers are getting their movies made while deconstructing their methods and career strategies into practical insights that you can use on your own horror filmmaking journey. This includes creative processes, funding resources, favorite books and tools, key life lessons, and much, much more. Today we have the director of Onyx the Fortuitous, Andrew Bowser. Onyx the Fortuitous is a blast of a movie, now streaming on Screenbox, and one of the things I liked most about it is, number one, it had really awesome practical creature effects from Adam Creature Kid Doherty, but two, it was such a unique vision of a movie that you can tell was cast straight out of Andrew's skull. The vision behind this movie was super unique, super fun, hilarious, and the movie ultimately made its way all the way to the Sundance Film Festival. In this interview with Andrew, we get into the highly personal origins of the character of Onyx, how he was able to bring the character from being a YouTube sensation to a full feature, and we did plenty of geeking out on 90s nostalgia and practical effects. Please enjoy this conversation with Andrew Bowser. Andrew Bowser, good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. No, of course. Thank you for being here. I think first and foremost, when it comes to Onyx the Fortuitous, when you talked about having a crush on Gadget from yeah. from Chippendale's Rescue Rangers, I don't think I've ever felt so seen because <laughs> that was my childhood crush. And yeah, I yeah. definitely was nice to hear that I was not the only one that was in love with a cartoon mouse. No, it feels like I might need to even start like a support group after the film because I've ha- I've had a lot of people say that to me, which is great. And there's no part of Onyx that doesn't come from me. So I can't hide behind it simply being a joke. It's not. I also had a huge crush on Gadget, and I was so happy to be able to put that into the film on such a... Yeah, you brought her to life. You made her human size, because unless you're Richard Gere, what are you going to do? Right, exactly. Yeah. Huge congratulations on the movie. I Damn, I, I enjoyed every frame of it. It just feels like it Thank was you. so unadulteratedly you. And I feel like you put so yeah. much of yourself and identity in it. Could you talk about what that part was like in putting that? Because it felt extraordinarily personal. But also, it seems like yeah. you just filled it with all sorts of stuff that you loved and grew up on. And I, yeah. having watched it, I feel like, oh, we must be around the same age. Because it's a lot of stuff that I grew up with, too. So can you talk yeah, about the process of so. just putting so much of yourself into something? Well, weirdly, it, it almost happened uh, without me realizing it. Because over the years, where when Onyx would go viral at different times, I would get the opportunity to pitch a project with him, Mm -hmm. but it would always be to a company that was looking for something else. They said, could Onyx be in a jackass style format? Could Onyx be like Eric Andre? And and so I was always fashioning these pitches to fit whatever company's slate might have interest. Ultimately, none of those companies did have interest. And the only way I could get this film going was to partially crowdfund its budget. So what wound up happening very organically was I could then sit down and say, okay, what Onyx movie do I want to see if I wasn't actually serving the agenda of another production company or small studio? 
And that, I think, is why it's so infused with my DNA. I think there would have been other versions of an Onyx movie if I had gotten them off the ground over the years that wouldn't have, even though the character is me and, and I would have written it and directed it, I still might have been curtailing some of that yeah. to fit a certain shape. But because it was crowdfunded, I was really able to build it out by just following my own flight to fancy. And that's why you get all those details. And now I look back and I realize that was the best way for an Onyx movie to come to fruition. Uh, because the character has been about self-expression for me and yeah. investigating things in my own life and even in my own childhood. And so I'm happy now that the the version of an Onyx movie we got made was one so steeped in my personal experience. But it, it, there's another world where it wasn't, where it was right. a 90 minute long Ace Ventura kind of gag after gag of just Onyx going, my wiener for 90 minutes. <laughs> and I'm glad that's not the, the version of the movie that ultimately got me. Can you, can you give us a little backstory? Because the character has been around for a long time and you would make it on the news and you were like a Borat figure in a way. Can you tell us the inception of the character and how it was able to maintain life over these years before finally finding himself in this spectacular first movie? Putting it that way is exactly, I think, the, the best way to frame it is maintaining life. That's what it was. I, would, I, I started doing the character because I, I, I worked for a nerdy video production company. We'd always go to Comic-Con and E3 to cover the floor and all of the new releases and do man on the street interviews. And I happened to be cam-opping and producing and editing a lot of content like that when I was coming up with this Onyx character. And I thought, I'm going to be at E3. I could have one of my buddies come out. We could shoot a sketch where I'm a character that's put into the framing device of one of these con recap videos. And that was the first video was E3 Weird Gamer Guy. And in that video, he says things like, maybe I'm not Mark who works at Arby's. Maybe I'm Onyx the Fortuitous Slayer of the Bright Realm. He talks about his stepdad, Todd. They almost feel like asides. But what I learned over the years is they would be little narrative breadcrumbs mm. for me to follow up on, even down to where the film is, is an investigation into why is he the slayer of the bright realm? Is right. he the fortuitous one? Or is that all just a BS nickname he gave himself? And I was always attracted to the, and I wouldn't know, do people care about Onyx or do they just like the, the gimmick of the edit joke? Right. And more that I did them and the more views the videos got, I found that the audience kind of came around to liking Onyx for the same reasons that I do. And it not just being about the gimmick of the news video or him being at a convention saying something really weird. It really became about what is this guy's life like? What is he doing? What does he do when we don't see these videos? And, and that inspired me to then write a web series for him when I was at a place called Nerdist. And they financed that web series, which was the first time I really explored stretching the character to into a longer narrative. And, and it was difficult at first. And then I think by episode three, I realized there was enough here to play with. And had it not been for that web series, I don't think I would have felt that there was a feature to write. But because that pushed me to explore further narrative contexts for Onyx, then the feature felt like a natural progression. I think if it had gone from one viral video to a feature film, you'd get a different offering. Right. But because we had a longer road and there was like a longer arc to that growth, the feature, I think, works in a way that it otherwise wouldn't have. Yeah, because it sounds like along the way you got a lot of feedback and there was clearly sustained interest from people in the character. And the fact that Nerdist, 
you know, yeah. essentially gave you a series that that tells you a lot. So it sounds like it was a matter totally. of time. Yeah. 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 And because I'm a filmmaker that was always cooking somewhere in me, I was never going to be happy with just making some viral videos. So it was always rendering in the background. Yeah. Over the 10 years that I've been doing the character. And then you went on Kickstarter, I believe, and you raised a little over half a million. And uh, yeah, how, what happened shortly after that? I'm sure it wasn't that simple because as we all know, making is, is fairly difficult. Can you, I know that's a huge question, but can you talk about in terms of getting the movie made, how did you, cause you had made movies before in the past. This wasn't your first movie, but yeah. clearly you would have to have certain budgetary constraints, but also you had to be really like seemingly conscious about where you invest your money. Clearly effects were a big, yeah. big investment. And they look yeah. awesome. And I really want to get into the effects. But how did you approach yeah. the kind of allocation of funds from the beginning and allocation of just like overall time and energy on set? What was totally you know, day one once you'd raised? Yeah, I literally, I think day one was activating department heads that normally on an indie of this size wouldn't have the time to dial in everything as far as they would want to dial it in. So. As soon as the Kickstarter wrapped, this was before I knew we needed more money beyond the $610,000 that we raised. And I knew that the film was a little bigger than that. But the Kickstarter money was like seed money to A, hopefully attract investors and say, look, we've already got this much ready to go. But beyond that, it was also a way for me to activate the creature design yep. and specialty props and specialty wardrobe. It wouldn't be a movie where, okay, all of a sudden we now have all the money together. We're going to shoot it in a month. Let's get creatures cooking. Let's get robes off of Amazon for the Satanists. Usually that stuff is really, you're not able to be very bespoke about it on an indie. Yeah. But so my first instinct was to get those people working. And that's what we did. My, I think literally the first wire transfer was probably to Creature Kid for Creature Design. <laughs> And then specialty props, a guy, weirdly enough, I think also in Colorado where Adam is, Creature Kid, a oh, guy I, named I, Jeremy who runs Caliber Craft Props. And then a wardrobe designer out here that I know named Lauren started working on the robes or Farah's white dress from the dream sequence. Anything that would require a real specificity. We got the ball rolling. Now, I think everybody now agrees that was the right decision. I do think... There was a time when then I got my producers on board. I already had one producer involved named Olivia who played Farah. She was on board. She was like, of course, get the monsters working now. Those things need to be primo. But my producers that then came on, it, it's a little overwhelming to, to, to see that the filmmaker has already started sending money out before we even have our whole budget together. Right. But the irony was that the creatures were actually how we then found the rest of the money. Being mm. able to show Adam's work to investors and say, look how unique this is. Hey, even if you don't like Onyx or you don't know about that bit that Andrew does, look at these amazing designs and don't we all love practical effects and the art of puppetry and don't we miss that, et cetera, et cetera. So by him already starting his work, we were then able to shoot a sizzle reel of the creatures unfinished that helped us bring in more money mm. and now looking back i think everyone even my producers agree that was a smart way to spend the earliest monies but a little freaky 
yeah. a little freaky early on. <laughs> so you took that, you know, obviously with the, the social proof of a really successful Kickstarter campaign, you'd filmed the kid footage of all the effects, and then you just brought that to investors to raise the rest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we had a whole deck that said Onyx has acquired this many views over the years, but you never know what metric will matter yeah. to any given investor. Some might not care about the puppets. They just like that I've got a million followers on TikTok. Right. Others might not care about any of that. They just want to know that we're going to get this thing done in a uh, certain amount of time because they don't want a project that they've invested in to just languish. So everybody's got a different metric. So it's really a matter of finding uh, how to fashion the pitch deck or the material for each individual. One investor really did just love practical effects and wanted to see something that would showcase that artistry. And, and we were lucky that they had a passion for that. I'll have to get that uh, investor's name from you at some point. I'm doing a I know, <laughs> totally. <laughs> so everything felt like it was in one way or another d directly from your mind. It felt like you had a hand in everything. What was your level of involvement when it came to the effects and the set design and the costumes as well as you know, the overall production design yeah. in general? Because all felt very bespoke. I'm very involved and uh, some people like that. Other people don't. I think as you create things, you find the, the collaborators that like the way you work. And I worked with a DP really early on that we just, we just didn't get along. He didn't like that. I also acted. He didn't like that. Not that I didn't prioritize camera, but I think he had a hard time looking beyond the camera. He didn't understand that sometimes you've got to call action on a take because the actor isn't going to clock in until they think the train is on the track, he'd say, why are we wasting a take when the actor isn't ready or isn't rehearsed? They wouldn't understand the, the, the big picture. And I think because I grew up acting, I'd like to say that I have got a, somewhat of a holistic view of a set. And yeah. I, I, I grew up like acting in Baltimore and being a background actor in John Waters movies and Barry Levinson films. And Whoa. even just as a background actor on those movies, if you're enough of a sponge, you can catch, you can hear what PAs are talking about on the radios. You can see how stressed the second AD is. You, through osmosis, understand how a set works and how it can not work. All that to say, I feel like Onyx was a chance for me to work with all of the people that I know like the way I work and like how detail-oriented I am, but also have their own vision and will will go beyond what I could instruct. And the, our production designer was one of those people. I gave a lot of direction, but Teresa would do things that I, I could never imagine because I'm not a production designer. I'm a good thought starter for a lot of that. And I would obviously, <laughs> I would sign off on the design of every Battle Cat toy and every album cover of Bartok and every book cover of Bartok. All of that goes through me because that's why I like making movies. I love yeah. the process from every perspective. I do think there's some filmmakers that even my sound designer had just done a film and he's, oh, the director wasn't here until the end. We played him what we did and he said, great, and left. I'm there every day on the mixed stage. I'm talking about raise the level of that blood spurt. By right. this, my, you know, let's push this towards dinner a little bit. I... I Maybe that's also because my background uh, when I first moved to L.A. was editing. Mm -hmm. So I'm like more of an editor than anything. So I, I, I like to work with people that want that much input. Now, there are people that don't want that much input. 
And those are people that I maybe wouldn't work with again. Right. But then there are people that feel really liberated by the amount of input and also know, like my sound designer is a great example. I would want to work with him for the rest of my life. And the same with our composer and our production designer and my DP. Oh, to finish that anecdote, the DP that I finally started working with, everything that used to turn other DPs off, he was excited by. Whoa. He loved my, he loved how structured I was, but also how messy I would allow things to get because I know we got to get a little messy to find things sometimes. And I want to work with him forever. But my sound designer is a great example of, I can give all the references, I can give all the insight and I can say, listen to this scene from this movie or listen to how rich this feels. But he'll understand what out of that I actually want mm -hmm. and what might be a vibe or a texture that I'm responding to. And he'll say, here's what we're going to do with this. And it'll get you what you're looking for but you might not think it'll get you what you're looking for. And, and that is really important to be able to sit back and say, okay, I've given all my references. I've given all the direction. Now let me watch them do what they do best. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm like, oh, put a little bit uh, more of what I asked for back in. But sometimes I'm like, hey, you're right. I didn't need what I thought I needed. To answer your question, I'm very involved, even to dialing back the speed of the, uh, the clouds moving in a VFX shot. Let, let's dial that back by 8%. Right. And some people love the reaction. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Dialing back. But all of that matters to me. And again, on an indie, a lot of times you're not afforded the luxury of that stuff mattering. Mm -hmm. The train's on the track and you just, you can only do so much before you, you're at the station. So with Onyx, I really tried to slow down and get as much of those details in place as we could possibly get in place obviously before I, you also just realize okay now we got to move on. we got to yeah. move on. yeah certain point where you let it go gotcha so from that perspective what i'd love to talk about the practical effects oh yeah first question like you said that the one of the first people you brought on board was adam doherty who's a creature kid who i've been following his yep. work for a while since he's been at adi and he's awesome yeah I love his, his little shorts. I have a Puglu myself. I know. You can't see it here. Oh, that's great. One. So do I. Yeah, I saw it in the movie. Yeah, it was great. No, yep. it was it was wonderful to see his work on a big screen finally. Yeah. That's super duper cool. But what was what were some of the references that you gave him at first? Because I feel like I could name a bunch of them, but I'm really curious as to yeah. what you gave him. You know what's so funny? One of the references is actually is sitting right here because I've been watching the VHS House 2. Nice. Uh <laughs> the, the, this is another way that I, it's you know, a director kind of shortcut is find the people that already do the work that's in the tonal space that you're looking to hit. Yeah. So even our actors, casting the actors that already operate in that right tonal space so that you're not trying to crank someone over from here to get into the right world. Adam was that. The work that I responded to of his that I would see at Monster Palooza and all these horror conventions over the years was him taking cartoon characters and then sculpting them realistically and grotesquely yep. and life-size. So he did, I think it was a witch hazel from Looney Tunes. Let me look it up to make sure. He did a, yeah, a witch hazel from Looney Tunes sculpture that was life-size. And I don't remember what year it was at Monster Palooza, but I remember getting up really close to it and it, see, it felt like a cartoon, but the yeah. skin was pockmarked and the teeth were yellow and the nails were chipped and it, th that combo of grounded cartoonish absurdity 
I think is the tone for Onyx across the board. Yeah. So a lot of the references were his own work <laughs> and initially. And then from there, we would talk about creature designs that had that cartoonish edge. House 2 has a lot of interesting, there's a caterpillar dog, yeah. obviously gremlins, uh, but a lot of the darker Jim Henson stuff, an example that Adam brought to the table that I had never seen was a movie called Dream Child hmm. that was about the writing of Alice in Wonderland. And it was a 1985 film directed by Gavin Miller, and it stars Ian Holm as Lewis Carroll. Whoa. And there's a, there are sequences where you see the characters from Alice in Wonderland as puppets. And Henson was just doing the creature stuff. He didn't write or direct or wasn't involved in a larger creative level. But the creatures in Dream Child were a big reference point oh, wow. because they're cartoonish, they're outlandish, but they don't feel friendly. No, they're look at really that. Unner- yeah. So it was that uncanny valley of unnerving but colorful creature design that was not so, I guess, straight ahead. I think what Adam would call video game design. He hates video game design. He's like, you don't want your demon to just look like a video game demon. You don't want your demon to look like a guy in a creature suit that's been reused a thousand times in a right. shop. Uh, that's from the that's from the Brendan Fraser movie. Gosh, what was it? Was it Bedazzled? Is that the name of that? Movie? Oh, it's something like that. Yeah, Bedeviled, maybe. Um, let me think. Liz no, Hurley plays the devil. Yeah, exactly. Maybe so, it is Bedazzled. So we yeah. were on the Bedazzled. Yeah. So we were on the same page where we wanted these things to feel like they were invented for this world, created for this world, and were a blend of a cartoonish realism mixed with like a real world texture. And that's exactly, I think, what he did. And again, there were ideas that were solely his. I thought the entire, I thought all the creatures, one or two would be a puppet and then some would be makeups and maybe one would be a guy in a suit. And Adam read the script and said, what if they were all puppets? And I thought, yeah, that's much more in line with the Onyx world and the tone and all the inspiration for the film. So that's when the demon became a puppet. All the ghouls were puppets. I had pictured those as makeups. Yeah. And from a production standpoint, as soon as he said that, I thought, oh my gosh, even though the puppetry might slow us down because it's a very tedious art form and a meticulous art form, the switching over from an actor into ghoul makeup would slow you down even more. Yeah. The idea of an actor getting turned into a ghoul and then us just taking their clothes and putting them on a puppet, that changeover is so much quicker. So his ideas even saved us from a production standpoint. So we'd have the ghouls on standby, ready to go. We could just swap them in when the human character is transformed. Smart. And how much of that stuff did you get to keep? All of it. Did you really? I have. I did. It's all in a storage unit. Some of it used to be here in my garage, but it's all in a storage unit. And maybe if my garage, which I've recently renovated, if it gets put back in order, maybe I could bring like the box demon in or put beefy bad boy up on his stand. Oh, or that huge demon with like oh, a carnival back there. Yeah. I could maybe mount his head. He's nine feet tall, but maybe I could bring in a foot or his head and have that. <laughs> uh, and Adam also created this. Skull. There's a demon skull. Yeah, I love that. Wall. That thing was awesome. Was like a pug demon skull. Um, yeah. And they created the Battle Cats toys. His shop did the Battle Cats toys. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, they were a real, I mean, 
I can't overstate the resource that they were on the film. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's incredible. So I, I remember hearing you in another interview talk about how exploring the Onyx character was really like an exercise in, in personal growth for you. Could you get into that as well? Because the movie has a real serious character arc and there's, it felt like mine from a lot of real personal stuff. So what was that yeah. like? When I first started doing Onyx, I don't know if I knew where he came from or what his purpose was. I, I did know that he wasn't an impression of anyone that I knew. And people said, oh, were you doing an impression of someone that you knew in grade school? Or, oh, is this based on some gamer that you met at a convention? And, and the answer was no. I might have based his wardrobe on styles uh, of the time. But his mannerisms, his tics, and his ability to fixate, his tendency to overshare, <laughs> I don't know where that came from. And it, it wasn't until I did a sketch where I sat down with a therapist and a, a real licensed therapist. And I said, I'd like to record us for an hour and I'd like to improvise in character. You knew it was a character, but I'd like for you to take the session seriously. Wow. And maybe I can cut it. I can cut it into an interesting sketch. There might be some funny moments, but she was beyond on board. And she was the first person that said, I want to do this, Andrew, but I, why I want to do it is I think Onyx means something to you that you haven't really discovered yet. Mm. And I'd like to explore that with you. And I remember at the time saying, okay, sure. Or whatever. Onyx is just my Pee Wee Herman. He's a silly, he's a little comedic persona that I have, but she was right. And as we talked, I realized almost every anecdote is, uh, that I share as Onyx is obviously like most improvisers, they're pulling from their experience. So it was from my childhood, even names of friends that he had or stories that happened to him were all things that I had experienced. All of his interests mm -hmm. are, are, you know, my childhood interests, they're frozen in time. So why am I stuck at that time? Why is Onyx stuck at that time? And then where do those nervous tics come from? Where does the anxiety come from? His default expression is one of absolute worry and fear. And as we worked our way through that session, I realized he is a manifestation of a lot of what was undiagnosed in me as a kid, which mm. were anxiety disorders and namely obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm. I didn't get diagnosed with that until I was close to 30. And I look back and I realize you and me. that's huh? I said, you and me both. I struggled with that as a kid. Oh, majorly. Yeah. yeah. And it went completely unnoticed. And when I finally sat and spoke with a doctor about it, they were like, you have OCD, these things you're describing, these rituals and these fixations. And when I was a kid, it would even manifest physically as far as like having to tap something or repeat a phrase or, and I realized all of that was put into Onyx. Onyx yeah. is so, hey, what'd you say? Oh yeah, from before. Oh, because I was wondering if, oh, never mind. Everything is, he's so twisted up. And that's why in the film, he finally just gets drunk halfway through. <laughs> and it's like actually loose. Yeah. Because he's, so twisted up with anxiety and stress. And then what's nice is, spoiler alert, by the end of the film, he finds a way to be loose and be himself without having to get blackout drunk. Right. And he's dancing with his friends. But that's really been the journey is, oh, he's a manifestation of a lot of things that kind of went undealt with. And now I've dealt with a lot of those things and I've been in therapy for close to four or five years. And I have a lot more perspective on what Onyx means to me. And it's really made me treasure him more wow. because he's just, he's just like why I would draw weird, angry drawings as a kid. What was I processing? 
and why I would make a comedy sketch in my teens with friends to connect and feel like we made some. He's a processing agent, mm -hmm. just that art is for anyone. And, and he's my fifth grade self frozen in, in time. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that must have been extremely cathartic. To, to the point where the emotional crux of the movie that you're talking about, we were shooting that our last night in Massachusetts. I was overwhelmed with emotion because I can't, we were at the finish line. We had one week in LA left, but it was small shoots and some VFX assets to get on green. But getting through that Massachusetts shoot without, A, anyone getting COVID, we were really safe and also just fortunate that everyone was healthy the whole time. 20 days in Massachusetts, we got it all. The last scene is Onyx speaking with that box demon and having that kind of emotional confrontation that sends us into a flashback. And we weren't meant to end on that scene was meant to come earlier in the shoot, but sometimes, and I'm not a huge believer in anything serendipitous or mystical, but it really was serendipitous. That scene kept getting pushed because we knew, well, we only need Onyx and the puppeteers. So we could put that at the very end if we had to. It's not going to require anybody else, any other actor going into overtime to get that thing shot. And so it eventually got kicked to the dead last thing we shot in Massachusetts at the end of an overnight. So it's 6 a.m., the sun's coming up. I'm so tired and I'm sitting there as a grown man talking to a puppet about why my father left. And I thought, yeah, this is therapy. <laughs> this is therapy. And I've, with all these wonderful people, been allowed to create a context where I worked through a lot of that in a inventive and fun way. I got to talk to a puppet about it, which is all my 10-year-old self would have wanted to do, probably did <laughs> back when he was 10. Was, yeah. you know, talking Alf doll or his Day Puff Marshmallow doll about what he was stressed out about. Yep. So it was incredibly cathartic and just, it was one of the most beautiful moments I, I think I'll probably ever have as a filmmaker was wrapping that scene and being able to immediately say to the entire crew, that's a wrap and that we could now drink champagne on the patio of that mansion and celebrate. It was such a wonderful kind of rollover of emotion into being able to celebrate and and just give thanks to everyone. Wow. It was wonderful. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. What's been the emotional response in that regard? I'm sure people love the movie, but in terms of did anybody see the movie and say, hey, that was me as a kid or I reminded me of my childhood insecurities or anything like that. Has that come up much yet? It has. And I think those are always the most precious responses. I There's been a... I was sitting at Sundance and we had already started to get reviews and some were negative, some were positive. Arguably, there's been more positive reviews than negative, but any artist is going to focus on the negative ones. And one thing I realized right away was, oh, wow, if, some, if people don't like the movie, it almost always comes down to them not liking Onyx, mm -hmm. which is in a weird way, great because... Again, we talk about what he is, and those are the struggles I had as a kid of, am I just going to be spit out? Will people just fully reject who I am in any social environment, in any friend circle? It even continues that test where you get a reviewer that's, I fucking hate Onyx. I can't stand this character. And it, I don't want to say it feels good, but it just reaffirms what this journey is, mm -hmm. which is making things so personal and unique to myself that I've got to confront even those feelings of rejection. 
and those feelings of not being wanted and those feelings of not being accepted or celebrated. But also as a filmmaker, I can read those reviews and be like, I don't care. I'm at Sunday. So right. that was a good pump card I could play on myself mentally. But when people, I'm sitting at Sundance and we're reading some of the reviews and we got a really harsh one from Collider right at the height of our Sundance screenings. And it fucking, this is something I like being honest about. It fucking hurt. They're not going to lie. It, no matter how much faith I have, and again, no matter how much of a shield I try to put up and say, I'm just happy that I'm at this festival that I've dreamt about since I was 13. You're sitting there and you see something that says, this is a disaster of a movie. Oh, God. And you're like, ah, oh, it's Paul Rubens and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> and I'm sitting there with my producer, Olivia, and she's, Andrew, so many people have loved the film. And I'm like, I know, I just, I like confronting the negative reviews. I like digesting them. And then I like moving on. I don't like ignoring them. And I've been on the internet for so long. I can, a negative review is really no different than a negative comment on a video. Yep. And I've seen a, a buck ton of those over the years. I'm sitting there and this kid comes out of the bathroom and he's, whoa, Onyx and Fortuitous? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, I'm here to see your movie, man. I'm so excited. And he was so excited that he had followed my process as a filmmaker whoa. and was a kid in Utah, probably 19 years old, grew up on my videos, so whoa. to speak, because he little when I made the first one. And that interaction meant more to me than that Collider review. And I think every filmmaker feels that way. That personal interaction is the, that's the treasure. That's yeah. the real sh There's no politics involved. There's no metrics involved. There's no clicks involved. It's just a young filmmaker being stoked to see this journey and see it come to fruition. And that's what I've tried to focus on. And with that, people that say, Anika's emotional journey resonates with me. That really matters. I had somebody that recently wrote a blog about the unpacking of his mental state and that he's so terrified to speak and yet compelled to overshare. And this person said that's exactly what their anxiety does to them is they just, they have a hard time calibrating. And that's what Onyx has the difficulty with is where do I fit in socially? When do I tell people my truths versus when do I hide and, and keep my vulnerabilities safe? And that blog really meant a lot to me. So yeah, the, the emotional perspective on the film from people that say, I feel like Onyx, and then also filmmakers that say, I've benefited from seeing your journey yeah. are like the two most important pieces of feedback I can get. That's awesome. Yeah, because I, yeah. I feel like many people, I was devastated when Paul Rubens died. He was my yeah. childhood, man. I can't even talk about it much. Like, I know. It was a killer, but there was something about his, about Pee Wee that you could tell was him, was elements totally. of him as id or childhood or whatever that resonated with us kids because like he was a human adult basically. And I don't know, yeah. I can't help but feel like there's a void that's been left. And yeah, I feel like yeah. the character of Onyx similarly is is. In the context of, of, and I know that this movie has been discussed as potentially gateway horror, which I think is really cool. But I think from that perspective, I think that this, this definitely could be a really real special movie for kids. What has been the response like either among parents or younger kids who, I don't know, under 18? That's, I, honestly, I'm so curious to know. I've gotten some feedback from friends that have let their kids watch it and they've loved it. I have some friends in Seattle that have like a, a young teen and, and then a tween and they both really responded to it. And I think it's because of what you're talking about. I think 
even though Onyx is locked in a certain era and he's of my generation, so his references are 80s movies or ALF, et cetera, it really doesn't matter. Pee-wee was locked in like the the 50s. Mm. And as a kid, I didn't care. I wasn't like, I don't get it. I don't understand these references or the style. It just felt like Pee-wee. And, and that, I think, is what Onyx could do for people. And when we were shooting the film on super stressful days, I would tell myself, I would just focus on, we will do a VHS release of the movie, which is really fun. But even just figuratively, I was like, just focus on the kid that would discover this on VHS. That doesn't mean the world to. Yeah. Don't focus on, will we get it into a big festival or will anyone care? Big picture. Just think about those cape heads that, like me, that found something that even with, that was negatively reviewed. I remember renting Beetlejuice as a kid and already having the awareness that it had gotten kind of some bad reviews. And some people thought, oh, this is schlocky or it doesn't know what it is. It's a mess. And then I watched it and I was like, what the? It fucking blew my mind. Yeah, dude. When I saw Nightmare Before Christmas in theaters, I'd been saving the, the newspaper ads for it, cutting them out. And I went to see it in theaters. And I also remember that it bombed. And I walked out Dead of the theater bombed? and I was like, yeah, it was what? not self. And oh. it's been this long road back to it now being a kind of Disney mainstay. Oh, my God. But at the time, like, wow, the fucking misfire. But I remember it really hitting for me and becoming my whole identity. So I just tried to focus on that as this movie is so specific. It will not be for everyone. I have to be OK with that. But the people that it is for, I think it could mean a lot to. And that's yeah. what I have tried to to focus on oh that's awesome just back to that kid who after the collider article said hey man i'm exactly. here for you yeah that's how you make the exactly. movies for ultimately it is it really is yeah. yeah and for those of you listening andrew was holding up a, a vhs of house Two: the second story yes which uh, uh that movie is a miracle we could do a whole other podcast episode about that but i uh, oh, yeah i have no idea where that came from but i'm so glad it did <laughs> have you heard about how I need to look up who it was, but that the director, yeah, Ethan Wiley was, if I'm remembering correctly, was like an effects guy. Yeah. Special effects artist and puppeteer. Oh, well. Wow. So that's why the effects are so good in house too, because he was able to pull friends in that were working on huge movies. And he'd be like, in the meantime, can you make my caterpillar dog? And that's they'd be awesome. like, yeah, I'll take, I'll take a break from Return of the Jedi or whatever. Thor on their caterpillar dog. <laughs> And you find these little gems that have really great practical effects, even though the films are disregarded, yeah. and not regarded at all. That's and awesome idea. Yeah, yeah, that movie has a street shark in it, too. Does it? Yeah. Well, it's not really a street shark, but it looks like a street shark. It's a shark, like a humanoid shark, and it's got mu muscles on it. If you watch it again, it's only on one sequence really fast. It's like, oh, that's oh a street shark. Yeah. I'll have to, I, I have it on my TV VCR running on a loop. But weirdly, every time I look over, it's the same scene. I only look oh, over weird. during a scene that involves the old cowboy zombie, but I'll put it back on. I do know that Kane Hodder plays a gorilla in it. Oh, wow. That's a <laughs> yeah. cool kid. I, I looked over at some point, I was editing an Onyx video, and I looked over to my TV VCR, and the credits were rolling on House 2, and it just said, Kane Hodder, gorilla. I was like, oh, <laughs> that's fucking Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So when approaching, obviously you'd been on sets before, you made films in the past. This was, you raised this money yourself, basically. So I'm sure you were super conscious of where every penny went. How did that translate yeah. into how you effectively ran a set? Obviously, I'm sure you had an AD, but 
I'm sure when you were approaching how you structured a set, you had to be very specific. And I'm sure you didn't have a skeleton crew, but I'm sure that there were extraneous people you may or may not have needed. What was the approach to structuring a set and, and how did it, that work? It worked really well, ultimately. I think because my DP and I are really in sync and we had a great AD. Our, and our producers, Clark and Michael, and even Olivia, even though she was in the film, they were still really able to run interference and keep me and Dan shielded from a lot of the problems that were coming our way. We lost a location. We lost a cemetery location. The finale happens in a cemetery. We were meant to shoot it at an actual cemetery in, I think, Pittsfield, Massachusetts. We were in Lenox, Massachusetts for the mansion. And I didn't hear about us losing that location until my producers came up with an alternative plan, which is really smart of them because there are times I can handle most stress, even if I'm acting and directing. But there are times where if you're going to pop in and say to Bows, hey, we just lost the cemetery and I'm in the middle of, hey, I'm Onyx the Fortunas. If you're just going to yeah. distract me, it's not a problem I can solve in that moment. Whereas we wrapped that day. They came to me and said, Bows, we lost the cemetery. We don't know why, but they backed out. But what if we took that money that was allocated for that location and for school buses to get us there and for heaters and for tents? What if we took all of that and just gave it to the art department to build a cemetery in the backyard of the mansion? And I was like, yeah, perfect. Moving on. By the end of the day, the problem was solved. That's producing. That is producing, and my producers were great at that, problem-solving and only involving me when, it, when I needed to weigh in. But to your point, scheduling is key. Obviously, like we, you know, we only had Jeffrey Combs for a certain amount of time, so we do all of the Bartok scenes uh, this week. We don't bring the puppeteers out until the second week and stack all of the puppets to make that priority because once you've got the puppeteers there, that's technically six more SAG performers yeah. that you have on the every day. The, the failsafe, though, was really having me as Onyx. I was able to do, this is a little bit of a, not a secret I hate to share, but it might demystify the movie to some level. So many of Onyx's close-ups, I am acting to no one. Everyone else is rap. <laughs> so <laughs> we could act. Netflix's single, we could put that at the end of every day. If huh. we were pushing overtime with our SAG actors, we could just get them shot out and then just end on me. And if I, if I wasn't acting to no one, I would be acting to Olivia, my producer, mm -hmm. because she would still be there as a producer, even if as an actress, she was wrapped. So there are multiple scenes where I am performing either to no one or just to Olivia. There's a great scene where Mac and Onyx have a heartfelt moment after he wakes up from a nightmare. And all of my coverage, I'm acting with Olivia off camera because Rivka was wrapped. We were about to hit overtime. Yeah, it's just, it's that dance. It's that constant dance on an indie where you can't, you don't have the luxury of saying, fuck it, we're going into overtime. You've right. got to get art. You've got to learn how to truncate things in a way that doesn't compromise the intention of the scene. A good example I like to share, especially for filmmakers, is... There's a scene where Bartok, our villain, spoiler alert, stabs one of his followers and they turn into a ghoul. And it's a long scene of Bartok talking about this talisman he found and they attach the talisman to a dagger and Onyx is behind a wall looking at it all through a painting that has a hole cut in its eye. 
we planned on shooting that traditionally, starting off with a master and then getting tighter and tighter and then going into closes and then getting our picking off little inserts of the talisman and the dagger, etc. We got to a point in our day where we had that entire scene left to shoot and barely no time. There was definitely no time to cover it traditionally. And my DP and I were in a bit of a panic and he just said, hold on, hold on let me think. I got an idea, but I just need to listen to it for a second. And he said, here's my pitch. We only cover the scene in close-ups. Everything is a drifty, disconnected close-up. Our only master is Onyx's POV through the painting, which we just pick off the key moments of action. And then everything else is Onyx's reaction to it, which we shoot in Burbank on the green screen stage in a month. And I immediately, I think because I'm an editor, because me and my DP are very much in sync, I felt like that'll cut. That'll totally cut. Let's do it. And that's how we shot that scene. And we still pushed overtime by a little bit. But man, if we had shot that traditionally and not just picked off these close-ups yeah. and had the comp that it would sl- that it would splice, I mean, that a one day of really rough overtime could thank you. You On an indie, then you got to go find more investors. One bad day is you're back out asking for money. Yeah, yeah. But it was a solution that didn't compromise the intention of the scene. If anything, it elevated it. But you have to learn to find the right solution. And there are obviously solutions not to say that people were giving us bad ideas, but some people were like, some people might say, do you need the scene at all? Can you cut the scene? Or hey, could it all be voiceover? What if you just shot the candle for two minutes and it was voiceover? You've got to learn to be like, that's a solution. It's not the right solution. Right. You got to find the one that still makes the scene work, but also helps you make your day. And hopefully there is a solution like that in there somewhere. Yeah. Wow. Just a testament to having the right producers around. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. They did so much. We had a great local producer named Deborah and and another one named Lizzie. Our AD was local, who was a huge help. They problem solved so much. And I would say this to any indie filmmaker, especially this might be a little obvious, but is to link up with local producers because they will have solves that you just, you know, you'd be starting it from scratch and they're like, oh no, I know a guy down the street. Mm. He's got a truck. We're going to move the shed. We need to move the shed. We can get the shed moved, you know, instead of calling like, hey, can I rent a truck from you? Getting a local producer, even if your producers come from LA or New York or whatever, getting somebody that knows the town is key. Yeah, it's a really good tip. So yeah. last few questions here. What what was your reaction or what sound did you make when you found out you got into Sundance? Honestly, I went silent. And it's so funny. I spoke with the programmer about my reaction. I, ha- I happened to see him a couple weeks later at an event. And after we got the call, but prior to the festival, and he said, I told everyone I, when I got off the phone, I was like, I don't know that he was excited. <laughs> and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I was so excited that I went into that mode of like emotion management. Right. It's like, won't sound crazy. Don't hoot and holler. So my reaction was, so I got this call. I'm sitting there. I was really despondent. We had gotten rejected from the first festival that we entered was TIFF. We got rejected from TIFF, which definitely put fear into the team. People started immediately started talking about, do we need to recut it? Does it work at all? Do people like Onyx? Is this a fucking botch? You got to really stick to your guns and say, I like the cut just because one festival, it wasn't a fit for them. That doesn't mean the movie doesn't work. And so while we're in that spiral of what the fuck? Oh my God. Tip said, no, 
I was getting internally pretty sad because I thought, yeah, what are the odds this is going to get to a, a great festival and have a good festival premiere? And I started to get pretty insecure and worrisome. And I'm sitting there on my couch with my wife watching British baking show. And you're literally having thoughts like, what, I'm just going to be sitting here and I'm going to get a call. It's, we're Sundance. We want your movie. You almost can't imagine those moments, especially when they don't happen frequently. I think the last time I had a real call like that was 2010, a feature I made got into South by. And so it's really been 13 years since there's been a call that felt like it could be life-changing or career-changing. And I mean, I've been fortunate to make a living in LA, but I haven't had one of those fucking, hey, you're getting called up to the majors type of calls in a long time. And literally my phone rings. I can tell it's not spam, but it's not a number I recognize. And I pick it up and the programmer says, hey, is this Andrew? And I said, yeah. And he said, this is so-and-so with the Sundance Film Festival. And I was like, immediately I felt like I'm in, I'm dreaming. This is right. real. He said, we would really like to show Onyx this year as part of our midnight program. And I started crying, but I <laughs> did that. And I just said, that's wonderful. And I, what a great call to receive. I think that's <laughs> what I said. And he was like, okay, you'll be hearing from us soon. There's a lot of material to get together and it happens really fast. You'll have an email from the programming team once we get off this call. And I wow. think, great. And I look forward to it. And then I hung up and I looked over at my wife and I said, we got into fucking Sundance. And she could not believe it because it's just the idea that they were open to something so silly. The idea that I have no reps, like I had no sales agent attached. It was a cold submission. And eight weeks later, seven weeks later, we got a phone call. Um, that's really encouraging. And I also want filmmakers to hear that because you hear Every film that plays at these major festivals is brokered in through agents or distributors have already bought the film and they just need this, the festival as promotion. Um, but that just was not the case. This was just an old school fucking submission. I'm so thankful. I'll be thankful to that festival for ever. But yeah, it was funny to hear that he thought I didn't have a reaction. Again, <laughs> like through the roof. Oh, wow. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I feel yeah. like that story might be a perfect place to end. Andrew, huge congratulations. Yeah. Love the movie. Oh, what's the sequel potential looking like? Man, I don't know, but I do hope we get to make one. I've written about half of it. I wrote All right. pages of a sequel. After we got into Sundance, I had the inspiration to just start writing. And it's cracking me up. It's a great 80s sequel. It feels like the proper sequel, a little weirder, even a little darker. And I am hoping it happens. I don't know. I don't know what the possibility is, but I'm working on a couple other scripts right now. And then maybe once I finish them, I'll circle back to the Onyx sequel. And maybe by that time, we'll have a, a better gauge on how many people want one. Cool. I certainly do. And I'll, awesome. be, look, I'll be looking out for it, man. Thank you again. Thank this, you. Is, this is great. Before we part, any parting wisdom or advice for those aspiring filmmakers out there? I just always say keep going. I, there's again, like the tip example is great. No amount of no's mean there's not a yes around the corner. And you have to keep telling yourself that and find joy in the process. That's so cliche, but I'm somebody that used to never find joy in the process. It was all about the expectation of the final product and the, 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 the tension or the pressure that I would put on myself or the project but along the way, I fell in love with the process. And like I was saying, now I care about every element of filmmaking 
from soup to nuts. And I think it's really important. I wish I had focused on loving that process sooner. And yeah, and just find ways to exercise yourself. If nobody is financing one of my projects, I shoot a short film on my DSLR that I can edit myself. And maybe there's two VFX shots that I can afford to pay someone to tackle. Mm -hmm. But just constantly be in motion and not waiting for someone else to pay you to work out, pay you to exercise so that when an opportunity comes, you're, you're ready. I've made enough shorts and music videos and experimental features and micro budget features to where when finally when Onyx happened, I feel like we were able to, to do the job. Yeah. So just stay. Yeah. Stay uh, weird to use sports metaphors, but just put in the reps. Yeah. I guess I would say. Yeah. Cool. Great words to end on. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Great conversation. All right, here as always are some key takeaways from this conversation with Andrew. Number one, expect to adapt. During filming, Andrew faced significant production constraints, including the loss of a crucial filming location, which was a cemetery. Every production needs a plan B, C, and sometimes even D. Andrew's experience is a textbook example of this. Losing a cemetery location could have been a disaster, but instead it turned into a creative opportunity. Andrew's producer figured that the art department could create a graveyard in the backyard of the house they were shooting at, and voila, you can't even tell the difference. Things will inevitably go wrong when you're making your movies, so not only do you have to be adaptable, you need to surround yourself with other adaptable crew members, especially producers. Number two, higher low Local. When filming in unfamiliar locations, you'll need someone on your crew with local knowledge. Andrew shot in Lenox, Massachusetts and had local producers and a local AD. Their in-depth knowledge of the area, their connections, and their ability to navigate local challenges significantly streamlined the production process. They had a ton of solves because they knew the town and the people in it and were able to call in favors. Every production needs a fixer. If you're filming outside of a major production town, make sure you have a local expert on your crew. Number three, channel yourself into your work. Andrew stated that Onyx is a manifestation of a lot of things that went undealt with in his fifth grade self. First of all, this is a beautiful sentiment, and I really appreciated him allowing himself to be so vulnerable to share this. Second of all, this is a fundamental key to great art, which is to channel yourself into it. On the surface, Onyx might seem like a goofy, quirky caricature, but there's something very compelling and very lovable about him, and it's entirely because he comes from a genuine and authentic place. For Andrew, Onyx wasn't just an alter ego, but a vehicle through which he was able to recognize and process personal issues. It's pretty profound and a strong reminder of how cathartic art can be. For any creative, remember, your unique perspective is what gives your work its heart and soul, so embrace it. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. We scare because we care. Hey, guys, one last thing before you head off, and this is The Howl. How would you like a monthly newsletter featuring a recap of the latest horror news, my personal movie recommendations, updates from the show, and cool stuff I've recently discovered? If this sounds like something you'd enjoy, sign up for my monthly email newsletter, The Howl, today. 
You can sign up for The Howl by visiting nicktaylor.com slash The Howl. That's nicktaylor.com slash The Howl.